0: I'm grateful to be able to share the message with you today. Um, One of my seminary professors told us that there's a gap that always exists between your expectations and your experience. Always, no matter where you're from, no matter what you believe, no matter how wise you are, no matter your education level, there's always a gap. Between your expectation and your experience. And so regardless, always, 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 especially here and now when logic seems non-existent, right? Like in, in, the, during a pandemic and such, it just seems what is going on, right? Like, and so, so the question is, how do you fill the gap? How do you fill the gap with your experience when it doesn't equal your expectation? Like, that's not what I expected and, and or hoped for, but yet, and your experience falls short, right? So now, when your experience, it, when it exceeds your expectations, it's easier, right? You fill the gap with joy. You fill the gap with fun. You fill the gap with delight. You fill the gap with sharing praise, maybe to someone. I mean, you fill the gap with praise when it exceeds. But what do you do more often than not when your experience falls far beneath or somewhere beneath your expectation? How do you fill the gap then? Do you fill it with bitterness? Do you fill it with blame? Unforgiveness? What do you do in the gap? How do you stand in the gap? How do you love people in the gap? How do you remain calm in the gap? How do you pray in the gap? Shift the analogy just for a second. And for those of you in the room that are, are are Christians, but really this applies to those of you that are not as well. There is a gap between your expectations and your experience, but there's also a gap between your hope and your experience. Hope from a theological standpoint has some has something to do with what you and I were created for. We long for things that exist in other realms because we were created for eternal glory in the face of the triune God. And whether you acknowledge it or not, you have hope that exists in you. You can try to kill it. You can try to numb it out. Some of you maybe have tried at some point in your life with pills or powders or needles. But the hope exists nevertheless. What do you do with the gap when it, when that exists between your hope and your experience, how do you make sense of the fact that your hope is shaped by God's word, by God's decree, by God's promises, by God's declarations of who He is? How do you stand in the gap between your theological hope in the person of Jesus Christ? And your experience, can you stay calm in the gap, or are you anxious? Can you be loving in the gap, or are you detached and dismissive? Can you pray in the gap, or do you find yourself shaking your head and wondering why God would put you in that place in the first place? And Actually, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't actually have the answers to this. There's no rigid answers to those questions, but it's hardly rhetoric. These are some of the most important questions of your life. We're going to take a look at one of the most profound scriptures in the Bible. Please open your Bibles or your phones or whatever you use to Revelation chapter six, verse nine. While you're doing that, uh, we have a creed that we like to say around here that Pastor Doug began many years ago. Uh, and so if you, uh, you know, there's no obligation to do so. But if you believe as we believe, then you'll hold that Bible up and say like you mean it. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. And I'll start reading there. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. As I mentioned, I, I, I don't have answers for you directly, but I have one whose name is Jesus that gives us a vision into his throne room where we see people standing in the gap. We see people longing and crying out in the gap and we see people praying in the gap. So what can we learn from this throne room uh, vision from revelation about how to stand in the gap to rest in the gap? to pray in the gap, and how to trust the character of God who is unseen, but who sees all of us. That's the word for us this morning. We're in a gap in the midst of all that's going on in our world, a pandemic, the war that seems to be among us, the increased tension and racism and my hope is that we're praying for God to wake us up to what to do when there's something that within the gap that exists between our longing of our prayers and the on one hand and our experience on the other. How do you stand in the gap? And I believe that there's a vast gap and deficiency among us about how we see God as Father. How we see his authority, how we see his care, and how we see his provision, and how we step to his plan. And we have a deficiency with the Son of God as well. We have made Jesus into some sort of boutique, gospel-centered buddy Christ. And we don't understand the lordship, the kingship, the power, the dominion, the glory that would send you to your face. If you were to see him, I'm not saying all of that, any of that to, to guilt for guilt. I'm praying all of that with you. We need all of that. But how do you pray for that and stand in the gap between what you hope for and what is? And I think we have a brilliant portrayal of that in this passage in Revelation. But before I step into Revelation, I think we, have, we should do uh, uh, just a bit of work here to talk about what this book is. Right? Because some of you, if you're like me or sometime in your life, you've avoided Revelation like the plague. Am I right? Like, because you feel like maybe it doesn't apply to you or the weirdest thing ever Or that the the people that are into it are the weirdest people ever, right? But I'm telling you that there is this book is not inapplicable to your life. And I know that there are others of you that are are, uh, unnaturally revved up and giddy about this book. Like, I have friends that are like, all right, yes, let's go. Let's get out the maps. Let's get out the charts. Let's go. But both of you are missing the point because what we have here in this passage of scripture, what we have here in this letter uh, from uh, what we have in this letter is God announcing to the suffering and the struggling church, I reign. This is the word of God announcing to the suffering church he, that he is standing in the gap. And God says, Hey, I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't lost, I've lost nothing. Nothing has slipped up. I reign. Do you hear the word of God in Revelation? I reign. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing is compromised. He's not working on plan B. The God of the universe who spoke everything in existence and holds it by the power of his word says, I reign. And this wasn't a letter written as some map of things to come for the future. In fact, this was a letter written to the struggling churches not to map out the future, but more an unmasking of the present and it still applies to us today and it's and it's really a portrayal of what is right now do you want to know who this letter was written to it's simple it's written to one group very specifically one group very gloriously and very generally look at chapter uh, verse 4 of chapter 1 of revelation John says right here, he says, I'm writing it to the seven churches in Asia. He addresses them specifically in the letter. That's who it's for specifically. So if you're inclined to read this stuff in Revelation and think clearly, this has got to be talking about the Internet and and helicopters and nuclear war. No offense, but that's crazy. This was written to address these people struggling in their moment in time. Okay? So those were the words spoken in their events, in their reality, for events that were short at hand that were coming soon. And this was written to encourage them. But look at verse three. You put that up. It's not just for them. This book is designed to bless Anyone who reads it, who receives it, who hears it, and who obeys it. For John says the time is near. That's who this book was written to. I want to read you a paragraph from William Hendrickson's uh, commentary summary. He's an author that wrote the book uh, More Than Conquerors. On Revelation, he sums up Revelation like this. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the church and its struggle against the forces of evil. To then is given the assurance that God sees their tears, their prayers are influential in world affairs, and their death is precious in his sight. Their final victory is assured. Their blood will be avenged. Their Christ lives and reigns forever and ever. He governs the world in the interest of his church. He's coming again to take his people to himself in the marriage supper of the Lamb and to live with them forever in a rejuvenated and recreated world. That's like my drop. I. That's what the book is all about. And the trouble with the book or the reason why the book causes problem, it's not what it's about, it's how it's written. Because Revelation beginning to end is really just about one scene. It's the scene of Jesus in the time between his ascension to the right hand of the Father and to his, his return to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. It's one scene communicated seven times in parallel progression where each time his return becomes more greater focus, a sharper relief, and more gloriously presented. By the way, in these visions, these these are, are presented to us. They're communicated symbolically. Like John says over and over again, I was told to share with you what I saw. I was told to communicate with you what made sense to me with signs. Even the Greek word there is used as communicated in symbols. This was given to me in symbols and therefore I'm communicating it to you with symbols. And we get into this weird spot where we think we have to make symbols have a one to one correspondence of all these things in the future as if this were a masking of things, a map of things to come instead of an unmasking of things They are that are now John's telling you one thing over and over and over again. He's telling you the story of Jesus from the moment ascension glory to his glory and his is giving you a word of what it looks like to be standing in the gap. What we have here is a peek into the throne room of God and I believe as we pray for our community to come to know Jesus, we have a powerful image and message for us in the midst of our own struggles. So what I want you to do is look with me at verse 9. We're going to talk about this a little more and I, and I realize we're going to look at chapter 6 of Revelation and I realize that Those of you who know Revelation are are like, are you kidding me? Are you just gonna skip past the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Like they have just marched in at the beginning of chapter six. Please, Lance, tell me you're not gonna, uh, you're not gonna leave me hanging. I'm gonna leave you hanging. Who are the four horsemen? You know, I'm sorry. But if you thought I was gonna confirm, they were like your, your mom or your grandma or your stepmom or your mother-in-law or something, I'm sorry. But perhaps they are dim reflections of the four horsemen <laughs> or bright reflections of the four horsemen. I just want to highlight for you three things that I believe, if we hear them, will transform the way that we stand in the gap, will transform the way that we love in the gap will transform the way we pray in the gap. Moving past the four horsemen, John brings us to the throne room vision verse in verse 9, with the Lamb of God opening the fifth seal. In verse 9, he says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, from the advent of Jesus until his return, we deal we will deal with the suffering that is connected to those who stand true to bear witness to Jesus. And and, uh, listen, I hardly see it as, as suffering, but my wife and I have prayed over and over and over again for our daughter, Nikki, who that was mocked during grade school for her persistent love of Jesus. And to be honest, it still continues to this day with her. But this begins early, early, early. Am I right? As we've seen in the beginning of Revelation, it could mean something happens though, and you don't get paid. It could mean if you lose, that you could lose your job. If you are a follower of Jesus, you could lose your job, your business. To follow Jesus and be faithful to Jesus will cost you something. For some of, some people, it may cost them their life. And we have here in, in Revelation where they have been faithful to Jesus to the point of death. And I want you to notice something before we look at anything else is where John tells us that they're located. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. He says these people who were murdered for their testimony to Jesus did not, they don't exist outside the throne room of God. They're in, they're not in some back alley of the providence of the Messiah Jesus. They exist under the altar of the sacrifice of Jesus in the very throne room of God himself. He's saying their death did not exist outside the providence and power and purposes of God. Like they live in a gap and they don't understand. They died in a gap and they don't understand. But God sees and orchestrates everything. And the martyrs are not out on some hill in some kind of new version of Babylon. They're in the throne room of God beneath the altar where the perfect and full final sacrifice of Jesus, the son of God was made. What an incredible place to locate. Those that died for the sake of Jesus. Is there any place in your life right now that you believe exists outside the sovereign control of the Almighty God? Is there any place in your life right now that you think exists outside the boundaries of His care? Are there places in your life where you think you have gone beyond the boundary or the peripheral vision of Almighty God and you think that you're unseen or or, or outside the margins of his care? I wonder how many of you think because of something that's occurred in your life that you're far outside that boundary with God. I wonder how many of you think that God doesn't see me here. I'm outside the communication grid of his almighty care. But John's saying, I looked in the throne room of God as the justice of God was being executed on the earth. And I saw in close proximity to the throne, the martyrs. I saw the martyrs beneath his care. And Jesus Christ was reigning there forever and ever. Listen, there's no place outside his care. There's no place you can go. There's no place outside his eyes. There's no place outside his love. There's no place outside his plan. There's no place outside his vision that you can go. What does the location of these martyrs tell you about the heart of God? What does the location of these martyrs tell you about the providence and the plan of God? What does the location of, of these martyrs inform us about the meticulous care of God? Even for those that think they got snuffed out because of him. So John says, look at where they are, where they were. Now let's look at what they say in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you need a translation for that? They're saying, God, where is justice? This is wrong. We bore witness for your name and you tell us things in your word like I will never let the righteous hang out. I will care for all those who trust me and they killed us. And what's amazing is the martyrs are not even demanding justice for themselves. They're demanding justice for God. God, how long will you, when it take before you vindicate your name? They're mocking you, God. They're saying that you're not powerful. They're saying that you don't care. They're saying that you're disinterested. God, we died bearing witness to your faithfulness. How long? Until you vindicate your name. We died in service and witness and testimony for you. God, this isn't even about us. They're in the throne room of God for crying out loud. Doesn't even seem to me like they're in a very bad place. But they're saying your name is on the line. When will you pour out your judgment on those who mock you? Now don't just notice the location. Notice the preciousness of their prayers. God recorded their prayers for you and for me. And remember what it said. That all these things have been written for our comfort. Right? Notice. Notice. Guys, please, 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 please notice this. Not a single prayer uttered to God is ever wasted. Look at Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb... Each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense. Which are what? Say it with me. The prayers of the saints. Your prayers. Almighty God says every prayer that you utter. He stores them up to be released at the appropriate time. Not a single prayer in honor of God is wasted. Every single word you pray to God is precious to him. How do you stand and pray in in the gap and pray? You must know where you're located in his loving care. And you must know that not a single word that crosses your lips or crosses your brain is wasted in his name. He stores up your prayers. Like what must he be like? I don't know if any of you have ever known someone that's a hoarder. Um, my wife and I we know someone and uh their home is packed from floor to ceiling. Like everywhere you go it's it's jam packed. And and not long ago I was watching uh TV, flipping through the channels, and I came across that show, Hoarders, and I don't recommend it for many, many, many reasons, but I found myself watching, and it, it, if you don't know what this is, this is a reality show about people that are hoarders uh, that, you know, get lots of things, they gather things, and they, you know, just storm up in their homes, and it's about them cleaning out their house and starting over with life. Well, this episode that I was watching, uh th- they had lived there, this person had lived there for 54 years. And they must have thrown away uh three of those 40-yard dumpsters before they even got to the point where they were, you know, stripping out cabinets and things like that. It, it was just full. And they were counting things that they were throwing away, like 124 toilet seats. Seventy something mailboxes. It was really sad to see because her keeping of things showed that she was missing something. God's keeping of your prayers is not some deranged old post depression hoarder. He's the confident king of the universe who loves your prayers who wants you to know that not a word you utter is ever wasted ever my bedside table uh drawer beside my bed uh, is has a top drawer that's full of junk i know some of you got like some of you guys have got to have a drawer like that am i right but I don't know what it is. But I have this drawer, and this for years I take things out of my pockets and it goes in the drawer. Like I take something off, of, you know, tag off a of new clothes and it goes in the drawer. But there's a trash can like six feet away. I don't know why I don't use it. But I put it in the drawer, and the next day I do it again. And you know, like other than an iPhone charger that's in there, everything that in there is in there is is rubbish. And and, and and so every year or two or three, I, I literally will pull the trash can from the other side of the room and, and, and do what I should have done in the first place and just flip it, right? But see, that's not how God treats your prayers. So many of you have lost the will to pray because you think if he hears me at all, he treats them like that. But that's careless, that's foolish, that's it's laziness that put those things in the drawer in the first place. But God stores your prayers, not out of heart of laziness, but out of ferocious passion for his own glory and for your joy. Do you believe, brothers and sisters, that God does not stuff your prayers in a knick-knack drawer, but rather places them in bowls of incense to perfume the throne room forever? That's what was happening when you pray. And you've prayed things maybe five months ago that you wouldn't pray today because you're a different person now. But even those prayers are memorials of God's grace in your life, or transformation in your life. Why wouldn't He keep those too? But He keeps them to release them at the proper time. This story of Dan, about Dan Bowden Bolden that Pastor Doug told us last week—it just every time I think about it, it touches me more and more mainly about how many of you have said that you have prayed for him for decades and never thought that man would accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But by God's grace and mercy, he did. And a couple of days later, stood before the king himself. God takes those prayers And stores them up. And says. Today will be the day. I will release them. And I have no idea. What happened in Dan's life. No idea at all. But God does. And he sees you. And he sees me. And he hears. Our prayers. The God of the universe. Today friends. Wants you to know. He sees you. And if you're in Christ, you are in a most precious place of his care. Whether you lose your life for the sake of Jesus or he will return this afternoon and you'll get to meet him in the air. He hears you. He hears you. Mom and dads, I don't know many of you, but I work from the assumption that you're better at what you do uh, than I am. Uh, I've not always been a great father. I, I used to regularly have to tell my kids, like, you hush and you hush, like I you know, I can't hear you at the same time, like you're making me crazy. Right? And and, and later they would come back to me and like, I already told you, Dad. I'm like, uh, right. But see, that's not how God works. God says, I hear all of you. No one is outside my hearing. God is so meticulously brilliant and complex. Your prayers don't like threaten him or or, or stress him out. He doesn't ignore you so that he can listen to someone else's or vice versa. He hears them all and he stores them up. God sees you and God hears you. Here's the third thing I want you to see from this throne room vision. And we're almost done. The martyrs cry out to God, when will you execute justice? They're mocking you. They're mocking you. And in verse 11, they're given an answer. Verse 11. Then they were given a white robe and told to rest A little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long, they say, and God says, here's how long. Take this white robe, which is both a a priestly garment and and a a symbol of purity and, and declared righteousness. Take this garment and rest. He doesn't say chill. He doesn't say relax. He doesn't say forget about it. He says rest. This is something that happens at the soul level. And and I you have to say, I can trust God to meet my needs. I don't have to meet them myself. This is this only happens in a place of rest. You can you can. Take time off, you can quit your job and binge on Netflix until Netflix itself melts down and you will not find rest if you're believing that you're responsible for for procuring it. The only place that you find rest is when you can say, God, you meet my needs, so I don't have to. And God says to the martyrs that are crying out for justice, rest a little while longer until the number like you is to be made complete. Like, wait a minute, God, you mean as a part of your eternal plan, you've appointed a number of people that will die bearing witness to your name? He says, exactly. Exactly. I have a number. I'm not twiddling my thumbs. I'm not trying to do something to wait for something else to happen. I have a plan. I have a number. And you can rest because God doesn't. You can rest because God doesn't. He says rest until I accomplish my purposes. Now here's what's hard about praying in the gap. The gap is between my hope and reality because it means that we're always praying in this one scene of revelation right if if the one scene in revelation is from the ascension of Jesus until his return we're always praying in that scene our prayers never exist outside that scene historically or symbolically we're always praying between the times we're always praying in the tension of the already and the not yet there there are ways in which god has fulfilled all his promises to us in christ jesus but there are also ways where we groan with creation like now during a pandemic god when will this end and god says just wait just a little bit longer rest live in the tension and trust that I am who who I am, trust in who I am in the midst of it all well I don't know how that happened but that's a hard place to stand How do you do that? How do you stand and pray in the between the already and the not yet? how do you let your hope be shaped by the promises of God and stand in the experience between what's yet not yet fulfilled by the promises and continue to be calmed down calm and loving and pray i don't I think that there's technical answers to all of this, by the way. I don't think that I could give you a how-to book or like a diagram or instructions of like how to build, put together your lawnmower. I think, I think that what you have to do here is you have to find the ability to rest in the truth of the vision itself. God... Sees us. Oh, he sees us. He tells people. He, he's dispatched people, or messengers on multiple places in redemptive history. And said, go tell them that I see them. Go tell them that I know their pain. Go tell them that I care about them. I'm going to ask the band to make their way back up. We're just about done here. And this vision functions in the same way for us now. How do we pray for people to come to know Jesus? For God to awaken us. To, to obey Jesus and fast and pray and give to the poor. The answer, I believe, is in the vision itself. The answer is to hold fast to God himself, to trust his character, to pray in the midst of the gap and hold on to the one who is unseen, but has revealed himself to us in the word and to his church and to his people. There is a question. There is an answer to the question. How long will we be in this gap? There is an answer. There is a day that that has been appointed where God will come to judge the living and the dead. There is a day that is coming. The question, who can stand in that day of judgment? And the answer is only Jesus. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus is worthy to execute judgment. And only Jesus can stand in the judgment. Therefore, the only hope we have is to stand in judgment as to be found clothed in him.